Well, when you were a child, you probably at times played a game called follow the leader. Children play that game and others like it. But the truth of the matter is that adults play that game too, though they don't call it a game and they don't always admit that that's what they're doing. But it's not just children who follow the leader, but it is also adults who follow the leader. It is our nature to do so. We are, the Bible tells us, like sheep who've gone astray. And one of the reasons why we often go astray is because we, we move in packs. We want to be doing what the people around us are doing. And together, the pack often is following a leader. And sometimes that leader is taking us in the wrong direction. And so it's part of life to follow others, to look at others as our example and, to, and our leader. And that's why Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, deals with this subject and tells us that there's nothing wrong with this. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to follow leaders, but we need to make sure that we're following the right ones. There are good leaders, there are bad leaders. There are good leaders to follow, and there are bad leaders that need to be avoided. And we will be able to distinguish those more clearly as we look at our text for today in Philippians 3, 17 through 19. We have two parts. First of all, good examples to follow, verse 17, and then secondly, bad examples to avoid, verses 18 and 19. Verse 17, brethren, says Paul to the Philippian church, writing from confinement in Rome, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Good examples to follow. Now, in this particular text, Paul doesn't mention the supreme example, but he did earlier in the book. And the supreme example, and the only perfect example, of course, is Jesus Christ. And you recall that Paul said in chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he told us that we need to have a mind like Christ. We need to think like Christ. We need, as it were, to follow the example of Christ. And the Apostle Peter said something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, for he said, For to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The last part of that verse, in his steps, that you should follow his steps, became the title of a very well-known devotional book back around the turn of the century. And was the precursor to a later movement two or three decades ago, maybe four or five now. Time goes by so quickly. Uh, entitled WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And the idea was Christians need to learn to follow Christ. They need to look to Christ as their example, which is absolutely true. It is interesting, however, that in 1 Peter chapter 2, the example that Peter is talking about that we should follow of Christ is how to suffer properly. That's the context. For what credit credit is it? When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. 
For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. That's the context. We're not very good at suffering, and we're particularly not good at suffering if we don't think that we're being we're suffering justly, that we are being harmed or persecuted or, or opposed because of some mistake or misunderstanding or some unjust reason. But the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered unjustly. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and before his shares, he was dumb. He did not open his mouth. And all of his suffering, right up including the cross, was undeserved, and yet he bore it patiently. And in that, he left an example that we should follow in his steps. Keep that in mind. There's already been reference made today about the political battles that we are in. And it is not easy sometimes to sort out our responsibility as citizens and what we should do in the realm of citizenship. And we do have responsibilities, and we should be active. But on the other hand, our higher responsibility to live like Christians and to follow the example of Christ and to be willing to suffer unjustly, to follow Christ's steps in that regard. Christ is a supreme example and the only perfect one. And that's assumed, actually, by what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he tells us to follow him. He said to the Corinthian church, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Follow me because I'm following Christ. Follow me to the extent that I'm following Christ. Follow me only insofar as I am following Christ. And when I, Paul, or any other human being who is not a perfect example stray from following Christ, then don't follow that, but follow me as I imitate Christ. And Paul could say that as a committed, mature Christian who knew that if others would follow his example, that that would be beneficial to other believers. And so the Bible is telling us that though Christ is the only perfect example, he is not the only example we are to look to the right kinds of human examples. In fact, Christ doesn't provide a suitable example in every regard because his nature was unique, his mission was unique. Our nature isn't like his. He was the God-man. We are just men, men and women. But he had a divine nature and a human nature, and his human nature was sinless, perfect in every regard. And furthermore, his mission was that of atonement. He came to die in the place of sinners, and that's not our mission. And so there are various things about the life of Christ that really cannot be followed. And furthermore, Christ is no longer present. We can learn about him from the pages of Scripture, but so much of what happened, as I remember it, in the What Would Jesus Do movement several decades ago, turned into a an act of speculating as to what you might you think Christ might do and then saying, that's what I'll do. In other words, there was no objectivity to it. Would Jesus go to a football game? Now, some of you say, well, I think he would. And others say, well, I don't think he would. And 
How do you know? You don't. I don't think he would mind, my personal opinion, I don't think he would mind going to a football game. But as I trace through my mind the life of Christ that's given to us in the Gospels, I could not think of any example where he went to a sporting event. Now, does that mean that he didn't? No, he could have. Does that mean that we shouldn't? No, not, it doesn't mean that. You can't draw that from it. But there's so many things about the life of Christ that we don't know. What would he do about this? What would he do about that? Would Jesus ride a motorcycle? Some would say, of course he would. And others would say, of course he wouldn't. And that's a lot of what goes on with trying to figure out what would Jesus do. We frankly don't know. And he's not here. We can't continue to observe him. And so in that regard, he doesn't provide a suitable example. There's so many unknowns about his life. And furthermore, as we know, his sinless perfection is unattainable by us in this world. We will reach that in eternity, but it's unattainable by us in this world. It should always be the goal, and that's what Paul is saying, that he made Christ's perfection his goal in this life, and because that was his constant goal, that made him a a good and solid example for others to follow. But Paul never reached that attainment, as he tells us very clearly in the verses before our text in this world. And we won't either. So there are a lot of things about the example of Christ that don't meet our every need. And therefore, the Bible tells us that we need to find good living examples in godly Christians around us and follow them. And Paul offers himself as a reliable example of a good person to follow. Brethren, verse 17, join in following my example. Because Paul was mature. Because Paul was committed to the cause of Christ to a degree that very few others have ever been or ever will be. Because Paul demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice all the way to death for the cause of Christ. Because Paul was striving every day for Christ's likeness. And so he says, follow me, join in following my example. And some would say, well, Paul, that sounds like you're pretty proud asking other people to follow your example. But it occurs to me that actually that is an act of great humility, and here's why. He is calling upon people to examine his life, to scrutinize it carefully, to look at every aspect of it, and he's willing for that to be done, knowing that if people do that, they will find some things that are weak and not everything they ought to be because he has not fully attained yet, and yet he's still willing to open his life to their gaze, to the examination of others, to make his life an open book, and that demonstrates his humility. Examine my life. When you see a wart, tell me about it. When you see a wart, don't follow that. But examine my life carefully in every regard. And consider that in most aspects, that will make a good pattern for you to follow. That strikes me as being exceedingly humble. How many of us are really willing to do that? How many of us are willing to throw open the door to others and say, come walk with me, 
24-7, like Jesus did with the apostles to live with him 24-7. Come on into my home and examine my life with my wife and my children in my home. Come to my job and examine my life every day on my job and see how I relate to my fellow employees and hear the language that I use on my job. Come with me during my times of relaxation and see what I do during my moments of leisure. Come and examine my life carefully. I, I have no qualms about your doing that. I invite you to do that. Come and do that and then follow my example. Are you willing to do that? Are you ready to do that? Are you, would you, would you rather not do that? And if so, why not? And I would say that a reluctance to do so is probably more a manifestation of pride than an invitation to do so. Brethren, join in following my example. Paul is saying what many of us have heard over the years, don't do as I say, but do as I do. We've heard the opposite, but that's what Paul is saying. Don't do as I say only. He's not saying don't do as I say at all. In fact, as an apostle, he does say, do what I say. I'm giving you the word of God. I'm giving you divine instructions. I'm giving you further word from the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, by all means, do what I do, or what, do what I say, but look at my life and see how my life corresponds to what I say. Don't do as I say only, but do as I say and do as I do, because in my life I do what I say. Parent, can you say the same thing to your children? Not only do what I say, but do as I do. Follow my example. Teacher, can you do that with the students that you instruct? Not only do what I tell you, but also look at my life and follow my example. Preacher, can you do that? Can you say, don't only listen to what I tell you from the Word of God, but look carefully at my life and follow what I do? That's what Paul is saying here. Join in following my example. He's a reliable example. Christ is the perfect example. Paul is a reliable example. But Paul also recognizes that in his situation, there, are, there is at least one of the same defects that we have in trying to follow Christ as our perfect example. Namely, that Paul's not here anymore any more than Christ is on the earth anymore. He was a perfect example for his apostles who could watch him day by day, but he went to heaven, so now who do we follow? Paul says, follow my example, but Paul's in heaven, so now who do we follow? And Paul tells us, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. What's he saying? There are other examples besides Paul, other human examples. They are those who live like Paul. And wherever you find these people, note them. Make note of those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Be on the lookout for those who walk as we walk, is another way of translating that word, that in my Bible is translated note. Find others who are demonstrating a similar godliness to Paul, similar commitment to Christ as Paul, similar obedience to the Word of God as Paul, those whose life matches their lips and who are dedicated, mature, sincere, honest Christians 
who are living according to the word of God as best they are able. You search out people like that and follow them too. And you'll, follow, you'll find people like that in every generation. You'll find people like that in every church. Paul is gone. Epaphroditus is gone. Titus is gone. Timothy is gone. But there are others who are following that same course and they become examples for us as well. Good human examples for us to follow. And we must exercise judgment in searching out those people, being able to discern who they are. Brethren, join in following my example and look out for, search out those who walk as you have us for a pattern. What Paul is saying, in essence, is this. Look, if it's possible for me, if it's possible for others to live in a high level of Christian endeavor, then you can too. It's possible for you. We're flesh and blood like you, you, you are. We're fallen sons and daughters of Adam like you are. We're simply sinners redeemed by grace like you are. We have no more resources than you have. You have the same Bible we have. You have the same indwelling Holy Spirit we have. When you look to Christ and you say, there's the perfect example, I can never attain to that level of perfection. You are right. You can't. But when you look to Paul and see what he did, you have to be honest to say it must be possible for a fallen son of Adam to attain to that degree of godliness. And if he can, I can too. And that becomes a very helpful example to follow, doesn't it? Brethren, search out those who walk in this fashion and follow their pattern. You see, Paul is telling us that we learn not only by instruction, but also by emulation. Some people act as if the only way we learn is by instruction from the Word of God. Some people have grown to love the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does that work within us. And it is our necessary spiritual food. We love it. We learn it. We, we gravitate to it. If we don't, there's something wrong with us. But there's something else, too. We not only learn by instruction, but we also learn by emulation, by following others who are a little bit further down the road than we are in their Christian growth and development. And wise Christians understand that. Wise Christians are willing to emulate others. It's pride that resists doing that, that says, I don't need any other examples. I can go it alone. I can get all the instructions I need from the Word of God, and I don't need anybody else helping me with that. Thank you. Watch out. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible tells us we need the example of others. We need that kind of help and input in our lives. And I would suggest to you that your level of church participation reveals how much you understand that and obey that. A primary place for finding others to follow is in a local church. And people who are around the edges, around the periphery of the local church, who act as if they don't really need to get involved, they don't need that, I don't need that. I don't need any greater level of participation than just Sunday morning only. 
may be demonstrating a level of pride that says, I don't need what the Bible says I do need. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's good examples to follow. Now in the next few verses we have bad examples to avoid. Verse 18, for, this is why it's so important to get behind the right examples, for many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Bad examples to avoid. Who are they? They are evidently professing believers. Paul says, for many walk. That's the word that he uses for believers. Verse 17, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's a word that indicates our daily walk, our Christian walk, our walk on the narrow way, our walk of following Christ. But there are many, he says, who walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So they are professing believers, and they aren't just a few of them. They are numerous, even in Paul's day, believe it or not. But they are not true born-again believers. They are They are professing believers, but they are unconverted. He describes them here as enemies of the cross of Christ. You can't describe a genuine born-again believer as an enemy of the cross of Christ. But very likely they are deceived about their relationship with God, and that's why Paul says, I weep. I tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. We're not talking now about false teachers outside the church. We're talking about those who walk among you. We're talking about those who profess to be believers. We're talking about those who think they're on their way to heaven. We're talking about those who want to be regarded as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says, I wish they were. I wish they could be. I love them. I want them to be. And yet I see the deception that is in their hearts and I weep for them because they are farther from the kingdom of God than those pagan idolaters out there worshiping false gods in the heathen temple in the city of Philippi. Many of you were there and now you are are in Christ and with the people of God. But here are people who are who think they are in the with the people of God and they're not and they are so badly deceived and they are so far from the kingdom of God and I weep for their soul. And what is Paul's attitude toward these people? Well, sorrow, we've already seen it. He weeps for them. But also warning. Many walk, whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Though Paul weeps for their souls, he does not hesitate to warn them and warn others about them. He does not hesitate to point out their sinfulness and their errors. Because Paul understands that true love doesn't avoid the truth, even when it hurts. True love tells the truth 
when it hurts, because it needs to hurt if it's going to bring about correction. And so Paul's attitude toward them is one of sorrow, but it's also one of warning. Oh, you need to wake up. That's true love. True love confronts when needed. True love warns as needed. But true love confronts and warns with weeping, with tears, not with pride and belligerence and with a whip. And so that's who these bad examples are, and that's what Paul's attitude toward them is. But now, how are we to view them? What do we know about them? And Paul says five things about them, basically, or I'll give you five words that I think summarize what Paul says about them. They are dangerous, they are sensual, they are callous, they are worldly, they are hell-bound. First of all, they are dangerous, as he tells us in verse 18, when he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. And in all that is said in the context, I think it's pretty clear that Paul is not saying that they are preaching a false gospel. He's not saying they're enemies of the cross of Christ because they're preaching works added to grace, added to faith for salvation. That was the Judaizers. He dealt with them earlier. There were those who were adding things to the gospel of grace. In that sense, they were enemies of the cross of Christ, that is, enemies of the gospel. So in what way are these people enemies of the gospel? If they're preaching the true gospel, how can they be enemies of the gospel? Or if they are believing and embracing the true gospel, or so they say, how are they enemies of the gospel? And it is in their lives, not in their doctrine. You see, those who are true friends of the cross believe the message of the gospel without equivocation and live in the light of that message without any hesitation, desire to do so in those areas where they fall short. But those who profess to believe the gospel but live like they don't believe it, those who profess to believe the gospel, but in many ways live like the idolatrous worshipers outside the church, they are actually enemies of the gospel. In some cases, maybe the worst enemies of all, because they are so seductive and so deceptive. People look at them and say, well, if he or she's a Christian and living like that, I guess I can be a Christian and live like that too. Watch out. They're dangerous. Enemies of the cross. Number two, they're sensual. The way Paul describes that is in verse eight or verse nineteen, whose God is their belly. Whose God is their belly. That is, to use a technical term, a metonym, where you use a part of part of something for the whole. Paul doesn't mean literally that they have a little altar in their house where they have something that represents their stomach and they bow down and pray to their stomach and worship their stomach and so forth. Obviously not. This isn't to be taken in exact literalism, but it's obviously a figure of speech. And it goes broader than that. He's not just saying these are people who eat too much, though that may be one of the manifestations that the God, their God is their belly. But this is a phrase that represents all kinds of, of sensual desires and, 
and various lusts and desires. Their God is their belly. They live for fleshly desires. It may be sex. It may be other pleasures. It may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be, be money and so forth. Their, their God, what, what is most important to them in life is these desires, these appetites of their flesh. What is most important to a Christian, a true Christian? Christ. We don't always give him the highest place as we should, but that is our desire. That's what we are endeavoring to do. We don't always worship him as fully and completely as he deserves, but that is our desire. That's our endeavor. That's what we're trying to do. We are not living this life for our fleshly appetites and desires. We are living our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. But these are those who, though they say they believe the gospel, they are living their lives for fleshly appetites. They are sensual. Number three, they are callous. They glory, their glory is their shame. They have become calloused toward truth. That's telling us that they are proud of what they should be ashamed of, and it doesn't bother them a bit. They don't even blush. Their glory, what they're proud about, is what ought to make them ashamed, but it doesn't. In other words, they condone evil and do so proudly. Part of this might be represented by those who have taken Christian liberty and distorted it into sinful license to do under the name of Christian liberty what the Bible says is sin. There is a doctrine of Christian liberty, and that is the doctrine that what the Bible does not forbid, we are allowed. What the Bible does not prohibit, we may do, but always subjected to the greater glory of Christ. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Yes, you may enjoy Christian liberty as long as it does not cause a stumbling block to others. As long as it does not set a bad example for others. As long as it does not take you away from the higher goal of making Christ first in your life. But there are people who latch on to the idea of Christian liberty and then they live the rest of their lives for sensual pleasures and say, this is my liberty, this is my liberty, this is my liberty. I've got liberty to do this. In some cases, they're dealing with things that maybe are legitimate Christian liberties. And in many cases, they've gone way beyond that into things that are clearly identified as sinful in the Bible. And they're proud of that. That's the most amazing thing. They're proud that they're not legalists. They're proud that they have liberty when others don't. They are superior. They think themselves to be superior because they're not bound by all these rules and regulations. They have Christian liberty. They're proud of that. And Paul says... What you glory in is your shame. What you glory in, you ought to be ashamed of. What you glory in, true Christians would be ashamed of. What you glory in, you will be ashamed of someday when you stand before the Lord. You become callous 
to spiritual truth and callous to what it means to honor Christ. What are they? Number four, they are worldly. They mind, their mind is set on earthly things. That's similar, but that is mentioned separately. Whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Not only on sensual sins, but worldly values and goals. What does it mean to be worldly? We all know that the Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the mind, the, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What does that mean, love not the world? Well, that means I don't drink, and I don't chew, and I don't go with those who do. Well, that may be good, that may not be good. You may be a Pharisee. But that doesn't cover everything. What's more important, honoring God or protecting your bank accounts, your investments? Uh, what's more important, living for the Lord openly, publicly, or hiding your Christian testimony in the world so that you don't damage your reputation and your prestige and your popularity? You see, setting your mind on earthly things runs the whole gamut of things that belong to this world and to this world system, all the things that will someday pass away, all the things that won't survive into eternity. That's, those are worldly things. And when those become more important to you than Christ, then you've become worldly. And these people are worldly. And number five, they're hell-bound. Paul says it very clearly at the beginning of verse 19, whose end is destruction. They think they're saved, but they're actually going to hell. One commentator, I think, I forget which one, I didn't write down his name, said, those who are not sanctified by the gospel are not saved by the gospel. They think they are, but they're not. Those who are not sanctified made holy and progressively and gradually made more like Christ. Those who are not sanctified by the gospel are not saved by the gospel. The gospel that justifies also sanctifies. You can't have the justification and reject the sanctification. The justification must come first. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by our holiness, we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by endeavoring to be like Christ. Justification comes first, but sanctification always follows those who are truly saved. And those who are not sanctified by the gospel are not saved by the gospel. Well, I jotted down some lessons in conclusion. Number one, beware those who denigrate holiness. Beware those who denigrate holiness. We live in an age where some of the biggest mega churches are pastored by men who glory in their earthiness, glory in their 
crude language, even cursing language. There was a, a pastor who had one of the biggest churches in America out on the West Coast, Oregon, I think. It might have been Washington, but I think Oregon, who was known as the cursing pastor, the cussing pastor. Everybody thought, that's great. Isn't that great? Oh, boy. We can go to church and have somebody in the pulpit who's just like us, makes us feel real good. And, boy, did he fall. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Boy, did he fall. I was just reading online this week about somebody I'd forgotten about him from uh, Colorado, I think Denver, might have been Boulder, who once was one of the most well-known preachers in America, was head of one of the largest organizations in America and pastored this large church, and until it was discovered that he was in a homosexual relationship with, I forget with who, somebody in his church, and he fell, and then started another church, and now it's come out that he's been doing the same thing again. So the same sin has been repeated because he was put back in the pulpit or insisted put himself back in the pulpit. Didn't stay out when he should have stayed out. Now, folks, you say, well, that's in, uh, that's in Oregon. That's in Colorado. I'm glad that's not here. Folks, I could take you to churches this morning in Alamance County where you might very well hear the pastor cuss and laugh about it, and everybody think that's great. I can take you to churches in Alamance County where the pastor is going to make fun of Christians who try to live godly, holy lives and call them legalists and exalt instead a very loose, unholy Christian lifestyle from the pulpit in Alamance County. And what's the lesson? Beware of those who denigrate holiness. And number two, closely related to it, and I've already mentioned it, beware those who misuse Christian liberty. And number three, beware of worldliness, of, of misunderstanding what worldliness is and letting worldliness come into your life when you think that belongs to somebody else. A worldly person is one who lives for pleasure and adds Christ when it's convenient, but a godly Christian, a non-worldly Christian, is one who lives for Christ and adds pleasure when it is appropriate. Legitimate pleasures can be added, but they're not first. What are you living for? I'm going to step on somebody's toes here real big, so get ready for it. If everything that comes along, every visitor that comes to, to see you, if every ball game that your children are involved in, if everything that comes along becomes for you a reason why you can't go to church this particular Sunday because of this other thing, I'm suggesting that you may have become worldly without realizing it because it appears that the things of this world have become more important. Why shouldn't it be that church becomes the reason you can't go to this event on a Sunday? If you want me there, you're going to have to schedule it some other time besides the time when, when Christians go to church. Why, why shouldn't that be the posture of a godly Christian? 
Worldliness is putting temporal, worldly things ahead of spiritual values. And it can creep in so subtly. You see it. It gets into our lives so, so easily. Watch out. Beware of worldliness. Number four, beware of feelings. Feelings are legitimate. God gave us emotions. But what if this happened to you? The doctor says, well, the examination indicates that you have cancer. And you say, but I feel fine. Thank you, doctor. Bye-bye. Well, friend, it doesn't matter how you feel. If you've got cancer, you better deal with it. What if the Bible says, this displeases God? But you say, I feel good about it. I feel like it's okay. I have peace about it. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter what you, what you feel about it. It matters what God says about it. It matters what the Bible says about it. Beware of feelings. And finally, learn to distinguish between friends of the cross and enemies of the cross. Friends of the cross are those who live in a spirit of self-denial. They know when to add legitimate pleasures. They don't live necessarily a life of asceticism and, and uh, live like John the Baptist, only eating locusts and wild honey. That's not required of a Christian. But friends of the cross are those who put Christ first and then enjoy legitimate elements of this world that God has created and given to us as a secondary matter where they are appropriate. But enemies of the cross are those who live in a spirit of self-indulgence. So rank yourself accordingly, brethren. Join in following my example and note those who walk so as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Don't go with them. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. Shall we pray? Father, make us wise unto salvation. Make us wise unto the glory of our Savior who died for us. Help us, O Lord, to live for him. Amen.